From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Reset. Poetry is everywhere, and we are involved with it and use it all the time. Pop songs, love notes, things that you write for a funeral or for a wedding or for a toast. When we really, really care about something, we reach for poetry. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and pearls of audio poetry we find all over the world. On the air, on the web, over hill, over dale, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and then play you the best of what's out there each week on ReSound. We're going to look at poetry. This one's called What is Poetry? Without question mark. We're going to take poetry apart, dissect it, and see how it works. The central event in it is is the power of language to conjure up uh, the world. In the end, we're going to understand why poetry is so important to us. Poets, by their very nature, are especially perceptive. They notice the small details, the way a person moves or the slant of the light, and the way that those small details reveal larger truths. They are also masters of concision, distilling complicated stories and feelings to just a few brief but potent words. Now, reporters also have to be perceptive, acting as our eyes and ears on the world and condensing what they see and hear to brief dispatches. But despite this similarity, poetry and reporting have never really been more than just distant cousins. Until now, when they are suddenly and with great result working together on the radio as you are soon going to hear. Hand in hand, arm in arm, a love affair between microphone and pencil. Stay with us. Troy, New York is not a place that immediately conjures up a poet's paradise, at least not in the Walden Pond, inspirational scenes of great beauty kind of way. But if grit is any measure, there's a poem on every block. Troy used to be a boomtown, now it's a bust, plagued by poverty and unemployment. But the city attracted the eye of an innovative new collaboration of poets and reporters. Radio producer Lou Olkowski teamed up with poet Susan B.A. Summers-Willett and photographer Brenda Ann Keneally, who had deep roots in the community, and the three of them created a series of documentary poems about the women of Troy. They focused on the stories of working-class mothers struggling to make ends meet, and the resulting poems are raw, intimate, and tough. We brought Lou into the studio to talk about the project, and I asked why this particular subject was a good fit for the documentary poetry approach. With this project, which if you wanted to generalize in kind of a huge way, it's a project about generational poverty. And there's lots of ways to talk about generational poverty, you know, like how did this happen? How do we solve it? What's the problem? Whose fault is it? We didn't do any of that. We found the facts, you know, I mean, I know that one fifth of the population lives, you know, below the poverty level, that one in three children lives below the poverty line in Troy. I got our facts and I, and I know that stuff for background, but what Susan did was just observe what is the real, I hesitate to say psychology, but she, she really was able to be in these women's heads and express a deeper reason why this kind of poverty exists and doesn't go away. On the one hand, 
poetry is pretty subjective. And reporting is supposed to be objective. Yeah, this is completely subjective. We love we love these women. <laughs> we love them. <laughs> did you have to square those two things, or did you just toss one out the window? Mm, I think there's always a squaring. I think um, we didn't toss truth out the window. I mean, we didn't make any lies. Nothing's untrue that we've said or that Susan's written. You know, Susan's first poem is called In the Office of Temporary Assistance. And, you know, she wrote that poem after spending, I don't know, two or three different visits with some of the women at several state offices. She she spent a lot of time in those offices and just like reading like the posters and the flyers and the forms. And, and she found the language strange and invasive. And you know, that's subjective, but it was really based on very real, tangible things in state offices, namely those forms and the posters. And so subjective, but very much rooted in reality. Right. And she used the text of the forms as the text of her poem. Right. The only line that's not from a form, I think, is the very last line. Let's go ahead and listen to that poem. It features the voices of poet Susan B.A. Summers Willett and Billie Jean Hill, a 25-year-old woman with a young son who recently lost her job as a hotel housekeeper. I got to fill out this one. New York State application for temporary assistance, which is TA, medical assistance, which is MA, Medicare savings program. Did you know? You have the right to receive food stamps within a few days if you are eligible and have little or no money. Answer all the questions listed below. Do any of these apply to you? Yes or no. Pregnant? Need to establish paternity? Need child support? Drug or alcohol problem? Fuel or utility shut off? No place to stay? Homeless? I gotta reapply for my food stamps. No food? Every six months you gotta recertify. No job? Oh, and go let them know I do got a job and I need transportation to get back and forth to work. Recently lost income. Pending eviction. Do not write in shaded areas of this application. You have the right to receive an application when you ask for it. Did you know? When was the last time you or anyone who lives with you worked? I've had a job ever since 2005. Are you participating in a strike? Did you know? You can get WIC even if you are not a legal resident. I think that's baloney. What type of work would you like to do? Could you accept a job today? Are you a felon fleeing to avoid prosecution in violation of parole? I'm a felony. I can't do nothing. I'm f***ed all the way around. Do you live in Section 8 or other subsidized housing? I can't get no housing. I can't get no Section 8. I can't get no... I can't get nothing. Do you live in a drug or alcohol rehab facility? Did you know? We must accept your application if, at minimum, it contains your name, address if you have one, and signature. I've been through a lot, and people just don't understand it, but... How long have you lived at your present address? Is this a shelter? These programs are meant to assist you only until you can fully support yourself and your family. Obviously, because they don't want you on it for a very long time. Did you know? 
If total expenses exceed income, explore how the household is meeting its obligations. It says resource information. Do you or anyone who lives with you have cash on hand? Who would actually tell them that? Stocks, bonds, or mutual funds? Who in their right mind is going to tell you? An IRA, KEO, 401k? They'd be asking the most stupidest questions. A safe deposit box? Life insurance? A burial fund? A burial space? Are you blind, disabled, or pregnant? Black, white, unknown? Are you a victim of domestic violence? Did you know? Yeah, I did know, actually. If so, when did you know it? In the Office of Temporary Assistance, a documentary poem from the project Inverse. Again, here's producer Lou Olkowski. You know, some of the statements on that form are amazing. You know, one is it kind of asks to, you know, explore how the household is meeting its its needs if it doesn't have any income. And it's, it's just such an odd thing to ask because it, it seems to be something that, well, people might not tell the truth about where they're getting their money if they don't have ways of getting money in terms of jobs. <laughs> she nails it in the piece. She said, who's going to tell them that? Yeah. Um, that's Billie Jean, yeah. Billie Jean has a remarkable honesty, I think. She loved being in front of the microphone. And I found her to be so open, just so open. She loved it. Um, she wasn't hamming it up. She just loved it. You can sort of tell that she really, really loves it. And that brings us to our next piece, uh, which is also about Billie Jean. Tell us a little bit more about this one. Well, this is my very favorite one, Just a Girl. It takes place on Flag Day in Troy, New York. You know, Troy is a very, very patriotic city. They have an enormous Flag Day parade. I've never seen anything like it. This is not like three fire trucks, you know, kind of going by. This is just an enormous parade. And everyone in town comes out for it, including the women of Troy that we followed. And on this particular day, Billie Jean got pretty dolled up, and she had some some big plans for that. She really went out there wanting to be seen. My sister had her babies today. My sister had her babies. Her sister's water broke this morning and her Cymbalta's not working and she's soon to be homeless because those twin nephews are fast on their way. If one of us ain't out by the first, they's giving eviction orders for both of us, so I really don't have nowhere to live. I don't have no job. But today, her ex-lover's baby mother is going to be at the Flag Day Parade. This year I'm doing things a little different. And she's lost weight in hell if she's not going to look tight and fine. I'm out here looking to cause trouble. So she spanks on the elastic of her best tube dress and props each pale leg on the sink for a quick dry shave and straps on her $5 sandals, the ones with rhinestones gleaming over clear plastic heels. Come on, let's go straight. And with three boys in tow and her sister's toddler in a stroller, she struts down the parade route past a tall Uncle Sam while men swear, God damn, in the direction of her glorious and soft American ass. This is what I live for. This is why I go outside. You should have saw it the other day what I had on. I, oh my God, I swear to God, I could not get that on block. 
and the spectating girls jiggle their babies and smack their lips talking this, that, and the third about her as her epic hollow hearts of gold bamboo swing low in each ear, winking, I love you, in silver script. That's Lockheed's baby mother over there. And when she turns to witness her ex's baby mother suck her teeth, the tattoo on her neck flexes the words, just a girl, like the Michael Jackson song. She's just a girl who claims that I am the one. I wish I had a gun because I would shoot that I'm going to go get him back. I'll just wait. I'll wait for my turn. And when she turns, the street lights up behind her with the shine of trumpets, cymbals crash, and the dancing girls of Troy High throw their glittering foil hoops in the air. Get a big thing of juice. No, you're not getting no high There ain't no orders. I'm gonna get one big thing of fruit punch, and that's it. That afternoon, on her way to the store, Billie Jean smiles at the driver of a passing van. You got a camera? <laughs> As he hoots to his nephew. Hey, boy. Hey, hey, hey. One day, one day. Look, son. Look at that. You see that? One day you'll have some something like that. Huh? <laughs> and she strikes back. So you got a camera? If you take a picture, it'll last a lot longer. <laughs> and poses low and leggy on a stoop. I just need a picture. With a face to it, or just that? Just no face. And a number if it's possible. You could. And he takes her picture with his phone. You know what I want, girl. I'll play with me. I want you to give it to daddy. There you go. Saves it with her number. All right. That was a good one, huh? huh. So he can Stop. say to his friends, take a look at my new baby, Billy Jean. <laughs> Billy Jean. That's how we do it. <laughs> this girl who is not his lover, but who may be. Possibly in soon. What's your number? Because this girl has the look of love, the look of the brokenhearted. Her bent over body glows in his phone just for him, and she wears this expression of what might be a promise, what might be trouble. Put my number down. This image of her fading in the palm of his hand as her sweet ass switches its way down the block and makes a grown man exclaim, God bless America. <laughs> I'm bad, right? God bless America. <laughs> Oh, you know what? I never got the kids nothing to drink. <laughs> Sorry, guys. We'll get something to drink, I promise, right? Just a Girl, a documentary poem from the series In Verse. Our next and last poem from the series is called The Cutting Place. Here's producer Lou Olkowski. The Cutting Place is about another woman from Troy. Her name is DJ Guerin. DJ is 32 years old. She's got seven kids. Four of them live with her, and one of them lives with her mom. Some of the other kids, one lives with his dad, and, and there's various housing kind of setups. But nonetheless, she has seven kids that she cares for. And at the time that we were there, DJ had been evicted. And so her four kids were living at her mother's house. And so we were able to meet DJ's mom and we got to hear Mama Vic's take on DJ's life. And so the first voice you're gonna hear with The Cutting Place is, is Mama Vic. She's a tomboy. She's always been a tomboy, Mama Vic says. Mouthy, running the roads, not coming home. 
And as she speaks, DJ slicks back her yellow mane into a ponytail where it rats. Where's the brush? Brush out the naps. Her slight thighs packed into tight khakis and her chest lost in a baggy green work shirt from the Hess. Don't take the time to brush it. It'll always be in a bun. No makeup, all attitude. One hand grabbing her imaginary dick and the other ripe with gasoline. Newly evicted. You know what? I don't want them to live in a shelter again. You gotta watch what you do with my grandchildren. Her lazy eye wandering over the babble of seven kids now occupying her mother's living room. Can you stop with that freaking godforsaken thing? DJ's my baby and always will be my baby. My bitch, Mama Vic calls her. My baby. And when this bitch rages, what the fuck do you think this is? Go put my food back in the refrigerator. The woman who made her daughters pick their own switch for a bare-bottom whooping she deemed the Peabody special takes her grandkids in, ambles toward the ailing couch to pick out their knits with a comb. DJ spits into her phone, that bitch better step back or I'll beat her ass, hangs up, lights another Newport as her name surely immolates in the mouth of the girl on the other end of the line. and the children scream over three pork chops and a slab of mac and cheese she's fixed after her shift. Not fair! Her anger a fast-rising balloon. Wash your hands before you deal with my food! In this room where her mother's Madonna of the Dolphins opens her porcelain arms over the television to bless Maury Povich and his inglorious guests. Which is not the case. I've never had sex with Cecil. Cutting place. Yeah. Days later, DJ will fidget in the pumped-up vinyl chair. You got beautiful curls that nobody can see. Contemplating her wet hair like a favorite pet. Rats Or maybe cursing it just for being there. In all reality, do you like to wear your hair down? Yeah. You do. Sour because she knows that when the snips come, they come fast. How old are you, DJ? How old are you? Yo, you go downhill. Shh. They will cut and cut like her tongue can cut. Faster than the cry of any child who may need her, her mother's glower, her temper shorter than summer. You know what? I look like my daughter. Well, you just bitched about being 32. How old's your daughter? 15. Well, what's the matter with that? And her mind revs a van filled with dollars of gas and clothes in the back. I just want to give up and run away. A narrowing list of houses she could run to give up on my house, give up on the kids, but I can't give up on them. And the narrowing road she might drive to reach that beautiful fair-haired girl she was before her years as a woman. And every morning when I wake up and they're out there arguing and fighting, that's more of a reason for me not to give up. <laughs> years which, after the cut is over, she will sweep into a dustpan with the length of a broom. Only the strong shall survive, my grandma said. And I'm one of them. The Cutting Place, a documentary poem by Susan B.A. Summers Willett and Lou Olkowski, with photographer Brenda Ann Keneally, from the series In Verse. You know, it was very difficult to get the material in the girls' hands after, you know, we finished. Again, producer Lou Olkowski. You know, kind of, we were up there in 
in July, um, uh, the last time and, um, or maybe June. And then I kind of went in the hole to produce the pieces. And by the time they had been done, I, I, I would, you know, kind of call occasionally or text occasionally to kind of keep in touch with both Billie Jean and DJ. And at some point, both of their phones stopped working. I think in one case, it was turned off. And in another case, I don't think she could afford to pay her bill. And so it was just kind of not working. Each of them moved twice (laughs) since we were there. And so I lost track of them, which was really quite distressing, actually. And it is only recently that I've been able to connect with them again and share the work. I sent the poems to DJ, and she received them right before Christmas. And I worried because the poem can be harsh. Her mother's language can be harsh. Hers can be harsh. I wasn't sure how she was going to feel about that. Anyway, I, I kind of sent her the the piece, and, and then I got in a text that said, thanks, got it now I'm crying. And I called her up right away. And she was very DJ. And she kind of in a very quietly dramatic way, just said, O M G. O M G. She's like, I'm crying. And and I was like, well, you know, what does that mean? I mean, do you feel like, do you feel like it's true? Like, do you feel like we got you like that? You feel like it sounds like you? And she said, yeah. And I asked her if there's anything she didn't like about it. And she said, not for her, but that she'd played it with her kids and that the kids were mad that we talked about them having lice, which I can totally understand (laughs) um, and feel guilty about. Um, (laughs) But that it felt true to her. And, you know, it was hard to understand what made her cry. It could be, you know, that she heard it and kind of felt some empathy for herself. And I, I hope that, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I think that's a lot to ask, but mainly her reaction was that it felt, it felt right. That was Lou Olkowski, who teamed up with poet Susan B. A. Summers-Willett and photographer Brenda Ann Keneally on the Inverse Project, which was funded with an MQ2 grant from the Association of Independence in Radio and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. To find out more, to hear other stories from Inverse, and to see Brenda's incredible photographs of the women of Troy, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. We have been forced to imagine, and in our imaginations encounter lives and places that we might not otherwise have been thinking about. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Fred Degar is a creative writing teacher and an award-winning poet. He was sitting in his office at Virginia Tech University in 2007 when, on the other side of campus, one of his former students shot 32 of his classmates and then himself. The tragedy inspired Degar to write a poem about the event called Elegy, and it turns out he wasn't the only poet serving as a reporter on that dark day. Our next story is about how Degar and other poets on campus enlisted the healing power of artistic expression in their response to this tragedy. It's called Elegy for the Tech.
Police speckle campus lawns, their cars parked ostentatiously, illegally, public exhibits in an open-air museum of broken hearts. Their gunmetal charm sets me on edge. The ones in plain clothes stand out even more. Their inconspicuous intent is itself conspicuous. I'm Fred Degar, and I um, teach here at Virginia Tech in the English department. This is my fifth year, but during my fourth year on April the 16th, I was in my office as usual, and there was a siren that loudly proclaimed we should all evacuate the building, by which time we all knew that um, at least 20 people had been shot dead. Bless them for their crude cover of us in our raw state. We believe in nothing but slowness when in the open. For the sun, as it slips cloud cover, startles with its glare. And no man, woman or child, looks quite so lost as when left to idle before an impromptu memorial. By an impulse that stays one step ahead of thinking. What am I thinking? when I catch myself in its stasis. That love's cloak keeps us warm in a crisis. Well, this is um, Virginia Tech. We've just come down the main road leading into campus. We've come under the bridge, which is the main bridge leading over the main road. And now we're facing the drill field which students cross several times a day to go to dining hall or from their dormitories to lecture theatres. You always have to cross the drill field to get to one place or the other. But it's always a place with lots of footsteps, making tracks, heading somewhere purposefully. As we are now, about to go under the bridge. When I came here to teach, among our first students were Tim Lockridge and Ennis McCreary. Both poets, one from Indiana, as Tim Lockridge is, and Ennis McCreary is local, she grew up here. So we, we all as poets, in different ways, if you'd lost, since I'd lost a student, Tim Lockridge had taught that day, Ennis was involved with the relatives. We all had a very close association with April 16th, and as poets we were able to do some of the work of filtering them. So my name is Tim Lockridge. I'm a graduate student here at Virginia Tech. I am pursuing my Master's of Fine Arts and Creative Writing. A student had been preparing for this event for quite some time, collecting guns and ammunition, went into a dorm room, shot somebody, went back to his room, collected more materials, and then walked into Norris Hall, which is not far from here, a few buildings down from where we're sitting right now, and um, unloaded an incredible number of rounds into multiple classrooms and ultimately killed 32 students and himself and injured many more. This is the first poem that I wrote after it happened. And it's compelling to me as a writer to look backward at that first response and say like, wow, these were the first words cobbled together. Were promises stashed in a well without rope and bucket unreturned. This means the movement of limbs is an unfinished flurry. This means you built a cinder circle around your love while the maple trees sagged through drought. There never 
was a mountain range. Only morning mingled with scars and your words like bottle rockets. Your words ignite. Your words sear and smoke. My name is Ennis McCreary and I was born in Blacksburg, one of the few people here who is considered a native. And we're coming up to Norris Hall, which is really a building that I think many of us pass every day and never really noticed before. But since the events of April 16th, we all look at it a little bit differently. I think we all at least slow down a little bit as we walk past if we don't stop altogether and just think about what happened there. And if you look, the second story windows are where many of the students jumped out. For me, when I walk by, I try to imagine what was going through their minds. What went on during that incident certainly caused tremendous chaos and, and panic. Victims were found in at least four classrooms as well as a stairwell. The gunman was discovered among several of the victims in one of the classrooms. He had taken his own life. Two handguns and more than enough ammo. All quiet as he pauses to reload and restart. His methodical walk up and down the rows. People I talk to, people I see all the time around campus, lying on the floor behind desks. He aims at them and fires again and again. My opposing army of music and dance sounds like the equivalent of placing flowers and rifle barrels and chanting cross-legged. He left me his acts and I bring all my past to bear on what he did as a way to cope with the fact that I too am left tasting sour. I summon my army to occupy this space. Horns, strings, voice, drum and bass. With Cho, who was the shooter, he's now firmly one of the dead. Before April last year, there were a couple of sessions that I had with him. There was no way to spot whether he was psychotic or going through something. It was too early as well. It was a long time before the April event, so I... Whatever happened when I saw him may well have become much more manifest by the time he did what he did. As a parent, I immediately thought of the parents having to collect their children who were killed here, who were entrusted to our care as teachers. That's why it took so long to forgive him, is because he'd done something that would require parents collecting dead. And that was a hard, hard thing to think about and then to get to a point of saying okay Cho you are one of those victims too rest in peace two days later I was called and asked if I would be a family liaison and that was when I, I arrived at the inn and was immediately told to go to the room where all the grieving parents were being held and at this point we did know the names of the dead although they had not all been identified. And so the parents were in the room going through the process of, of giving information to have their children identified and just begging to take them home. That's a moment that I will carry with me forever. I try to walk into the room full of grieving parents, but I can't get past the door. 
I've forgotten the declensions of grief and can't find a translator. And memory is no skeleton key, inside the door now strange and distant as Babylon. In the months since, some form of molecular musical chairs has turned the oak plank into a force field, a magnet to which my body is as attractive as cotton. If gravity were horizontal, I am Newton's third law. I tell a friend about the dreams where I'm standing at the door topless, a slim volume of Emily Dickinson held to my chest. He asks why I want to walk back into that room. He says, a closed door means an open window. I hear, jump. Walk humbly, son. Walk humbly now. And cherish every step For a life well spent On this earth we're lent Will be marked by the void you have left It was an incredible, an unforgettable image ambulances as far as I could see ambulances down one road leading all the way down another road I have no idea where all these ambulances came from and all along the perimeter of these ambulances and the edge of campus were police officers from all different counties from almost it seemed like anywhere they could come here holding large rifles I came in the next day to work and then classes were cancelled so I called my mom, um, I told her what class it was, a Caribbean class. She said, well, if it's a Caribbean class, why don't I come down and make a breakfast for you? So we met the following Tuesday, and we had a meal. And the greatest thing that that week was to break the, the bread and eat it with students who would be in the class and toast to Erin's health and remember her. My mom cooked soul food for my final class, fried plantains, Cow tail in a stew of kazrip, boiled dumplings, sliced pineapple, and mango juice for our first meeting after the cancelled week. One student arrived at a bouquet for my mother. Everyone heaped a Pirates of the Caribbean paper plate for this breakfast, minus one of our number, gone for good. We ate as if on the heels of a Ramadan squeezed into a week of nil by mouth, airs, and eyes. My mum flew into Blacksburg for this offering. She rose before the birds and I helped by peeling exotica and washing up to keep the kitchen clear. At 9am we breezed into my Caribbean class and served up honeydew with plates of paradise. So we are walking into Hokey Grill. In here, we have a number of uh, delightful establishments, very familiar to students. Uh, you can pizza, chicken sandwiches, coffee, um, desserts. My, my belief is that if you write at a site of trauma, it equals growth of some kind and challenge of some kind. So none of my books will be called happiness. Can't do it. <laughs> Not because I'm miserable, but because I think Unless your nervous system is shaken up in some way, what comes out will really hardly ever impact anybody else because most of us are struggling with articulacy and with some real needs in the world. So for me, an historical trauma, if it's Jonestown, where all those Americans died in Guyana, or slavery, 
we know that there are all sites of trauma where as a writer you go to test your ethical system. What I didn't expect was for that system to come knocking on my door saying you want to be tested? Here, try this for size. Now as we come here to the memorial to the victims, it's really important to know how this came about. The day of the shootings, a group of students actually went to a building site and stole 32 Hokie stones and put them out here in a semicircle as these more permanent stones are now. And immediately people began to bring personal items, uh, flowers, notes. It was amazing. And, and what was even more touching to me was that someone brought a 33rd stone and put it there for Cho. If you look, these are also in Hokie stone, but each of the victims' names has been carved in the top. And then in the middle area, up top, there's a smaller walkway that says, we are Virginia Tech, we will prevail. And those are the words spoken by Nikki Giovanni at the convocation that was held the day after the shootings. We are Virginia Tech. The Hokie Nation embraces our own and reaches out with open heart and hands to those who offer their hearts and minds. We are strong and brave and innocent and unafraid. We are better than we think and not quite what we want to be. We are alive to the imagination and the possibility we will continue to invent the future. Through our blood and tears, through all this sadness, we are the Hokies. We will prevail. We will prevail. We will prevail. We are Virginia Tech. We went to the huge stands here where the football games are played in the capacity of 60,000, so it was huge. And we all got together for this um, celebration and the Dave Matthews band and Peter Mayer and other people played. And it turned from a very morose initial beginning to this big reaffirmation of, um, of Joy de Vive, you know. <laughs> Twist, shout, swing left, dip right. Tell the DJ, don't stop unless he wants a riot on his hands. This is serious, this is disco. Dance till you drop, sweat like peas. We cleared the room of desks and chairs and left it empty for this wall of speakers and two turntables and strobe lights so strong they might induce epilepsy. There's no time to think this through. There's a gaping wound. Only the vibes can stitch up and music close and keep sealed against the pictures of the fallen, lying in postures of the grave and sullen. We're in Castle Coliseum, which is the home of our men's and women's basketball teams. And we're here tonight for a men's basketball game against Boston College, which is one of our big rivals. Uh, pretty soon, 10,000 people will fill this building, and it can be incredibly loud. It's very exciting, the energy is terrific, and everyone will be on their feet when the players come out on the floor. It's a very exciting time.
this piece, it's thinking about those initial days afterwards where you're trying to push on with your life and the inherent guilt in that because there are people who are grieving, there are people who are dead, there are people who have lost sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. And of course, in the middle of all that, there's love. So this is called, Did You Know We Made Love Through the Worst of It? When I think about tragedy, I think about you and me, working through the shell of the morning's gunshot symphony, how we sidestepped that tired orchard of evening and instead found the riverbank's arms like denial, like the last hinge holding closed the box built of claws. How the water felt more like gauze than cotton, and you left your clothes in the weeds and fell into an envelope of night. Soon the surface will still, you said, and will bathe in sky, in midnight's beautiful bullet holes. I could only consider the current, the light like errant brushstrokes, like something misplaced, and you, the coda, the clef, the error, framed in forever. I went into this man's home, a young man, he was a graduate student, and packed his things. And when I walked into his, his apartment, I was really struck by the unfinished business there. Clearances. What were you thinking about when you shut the door behind you this morning? Bed unmade, groceries from last night, taco shells, Gatorade, still in bags on the kitchen floor. Laundry basket overfilled with soured shirts, guitar case open like a mouth. What would you think of me here, uninvited guest, stranger among your relics? Macaroni and cheese dried in a pan, to-do list in an angular hand. Call dad, pay bills, return movies, go for a run. What would I say to you, a man I know only through things? Bleach-stained bath towel, Beatles box set, slip from a fortune cookie. Something you lost will soon turn up. What sense does this make, a young man dead, one dead of 33? Policeman's card slipped under the door with a note on the back. Call your parents. Your key on my ring. A week to the day of April 16th, we all came to the drill field and gathered to honor the time that the shootings in Norris Hall happened. And at that moment, they began to ring a bell, a very large bell. And as they rang the bell for each victim, they released a white balloon into the sky. And after the 15 or 20 minutes, there were, we weren't dismissed. We all just knew it was time to go, and we all dispersed and went back to, to what we were doing. I will not always write about what happened in April. However, I realize that what happened in April will always be in what I write. You know, I, it's, it's one of those experiences that you can't extract from who you are or the way you see the world. I think I will continue to write about it, particularly as I have a daughter who will be going to college in four years. And it's inevitable that it's going to get brought back up as I drive her to school and unpack her things in a dorm room and say goodbye. It's changed my home in a lot of ways. I'm going to run out of things to say about it. I've already started to have private thoughts about it, which I'm not going to tell any of you. 
partly because it's my private business and I think there's that silence that I'm going to elect to go with the event because I've said enough for public consumption and I've already done it in a poem, the poem is over, I've done my public speaking, it's now about going private with it. The student I knew appears as a queen of basketball, leading a franchise to victory. She dunks the basketball with her left hand while waving to me in the audience with her right. She tells me poetry works best if left to its own devices. And I believe her without question, not for what she said, but how she makes it sound like something that was there waiting to be said. Something that once said cannot be denied. And though she was young, she looked even younger in a baggy uniform and trainers, much like a girl on the verge of becoming a woman, or a woman still two parts the girl. Elegy for the Tech was produced by Kevin Dawson and originally aired on the BBC's World Service. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Poetry can be intimidating, mysterious, and obfuscated. Of course, obfuscated is an obfuscating word, isn't it? But it doesn't have to be, and we are going to prove it. Here's a short selection from a favorite podcast of ours, Poetry Off the Shelf from the Poetry Foundation, hosted and produced by Curtis Fox. Each week, Curtis masterfully dissects a new poem, introduces listeners to a new poet, or otherwise helps to make poetry a lot more inviting. I mean, you can't be intimidated by some of these podcast titles. Good Bad Poetry, The Power of Barbie, and Cover the Lettuce, whatever that means. In this episode, Curtis does what everyone wants to do at some point after reading a poem. He calls up the poet and asks just what exactly he meant. This is Poetry Off the Shelf from the Poetry Foundation for the week of September 3rd, 2007. I'm Curtis Fox. This week, intimate thoughts for total strangers. A couple of years ago, there was a poem in Poetry Magazine that I couldn't make sense of. You know, it's one of those difficult poems that you scan and then you do a quick cost-benefit analysis to figure out whether it's worth the trouble to reread and puzzle out, then more often than not, you just move on to the next one. After all, there is always a next poem. So why sweat the difficult ones, right? Yet it's annoying when you don't get what a poem's up to. I find myself resenting a poet who wrote something that I a reasonably intelligent, if lazy, reader, do not comprehend. The poem I'm thinking of is called Dear Reader. It's by Dean Young, who teaches at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. And rather than say anything more about Dean Young or his poem, let's just give it a listen. Maybe it'll make some sense this time. The reader is Barbara Rosenblatt. Dear reader, my nightmares are your confetti, so you may step over tiny skulls like a satrap among unhousebroken whippets. The sour diapers of morning give way to the overripe plums of noon, give way to the designer cheeses of evening. 
Then night is no one's problem. How tender it is with its murderers, how consoling to its trillionaires, that lost spaceman music in the pines, God opening his box of fish hooks. Dear reader, I thought I was prepared, but I never prepared. But please, take this. It is your lift ticket, your perfume that lingers in the fire-fickled room long after you've vamoosed and made that poor boy nursing his third jelly bean daiquiri realize he missed his chance. Your bones already asterisks, your chipmunk glance a schwa. Hmm. Barbara Rosenblatt reading Dear Reader by Dean Young. You know, I still don't get what sort of feeling or idea the poet is trying to bring out, much less if he has succeeded or not. I guess it's time to call the poet. Hello. Hi, this is Curtis Fox from the Poetry Foundation. Is this Dean? Yeah. Dean, um, we've been just listening to your poem, Dear Reader. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, I got to say, it made me laugh, but I don't know why. And I have no idea what exactly is going on in this poem and what the intention is. And I was hoping you could uh, fill us in a little bit. If you remember, it's probably been a while since you wrote it, right? Yeah, it's been uh, pretty much exactly a year. Uh Or no, two years. That's not not that long. Um, I have no idea what my intention was beyond just trying to write a poem. Uh James Tate has a poem called Dear Reader, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think begins, I'm trying to pry open your coffin with a snowflake, something like that. And I just wanted to write a poem that examined or explored the strange relationship between the writer and the reader. And why is that relationship strange to you? I mean, to sit down and and write a poem and uh, to conceive of a reader seems to me to be highly laughable. Why is that laughable? Well, uh, because writing a poem is a a very private act. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not a conversation. Uh, it's more like sort of leaving some strange object on a trail that you never know if anybody's going to go down that trail or not. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind just going over the first part of the poem again, um, <laughs> could, you re- could you read this the very uh, you know, top stanza? Sure. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like a letter. So the salutation is, Dear reader, my nightmares are your confetti, so you may step over tiny skulls like a satrap among unhousebroken whippets. So what's going on there? Well, it's uh, mostly, I'm, I'm saying, I think that my imaginative acts are something that you can play with or use mm-hmm. to distract you from your own strange little life. Uh-huh. So you're like a satrap, of a powerful Middle Eastern uh, king, basically. Yeah, it's a metaphor, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, the next stanza? Uh, yeah, what is going on in the next stanza? The sour diapers of morning give way to the overripe plums of noon give way to the designer cheeses of, mo- of evening. This is just <laughs> basically like time passes. Uh-huh. We grow old. Uh-huh. Uh, we start out with diapers. We have an adolescent midlife blush. Oh, I see. Okay. And then, yeah. and then towards evening, we just sit around with our little... Uh, Connoisseurships. Yeah, I should have caught that. I don't know why. That's that's obvious. Yeah, what's now. the deal, Curtis? Yeah, I don't, 
<laughs> it's so obvious now that you say it. <laughs> and, and then, um, and then what happens? And then the next thing. <laughs> well, then it's, I'm, I, we're off the hook, uh-huh. kind of. Yeah, the night is no one's problem. I get that. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that maybe death is that what you're in, in, probably <laughs> probably we're not, we don't want to over. Well, that's always you know I have a tendency to sort of point towards death an awful lot in my work. Uh-huh. My work is probably quite morbid. That's what I'm, if it is funny, I think that's one of the places the humor comes from. Then night is no one's problem. How tender it is with its murderers. How consoling to its trillionaires. That lost spaceman music in the pines. God opening his box of fish hooks. And th- in the middle of the poem, you go back to the salutation. You go back to Dear Reader. Right. Read that stanza, if you would. Dear Reader, I thought I was prepared, but I'm never prepared. But please take this. In other words, take this poem. Yeah. And, and, and read on, if you would. It is your lift ticket, your perfume that lingers in the fire-fickled room long after you've moosed. And keep going. And made that poor boy nursing his third cinnamon daiquiri realize he missed his chance. Your bones already asterisks, your chipmunk glance a schwa. Uh-huh. So you're imagining somebody in a bar reading this, reading this poem? Is that what's going on? There's a third person in here, the, mm-hmm. the poor boy. Okay. And uh, the poor boy, I think, is, is uh, a parallel to the speaker of the poem. Because it, this part is concerned with, with a kind of meeting, you know, uh, the meeting between the reader and the writer, and it doesn't, it doesn't happen, you know. Mm. Uh, the, the reader is somebody who's, who's gone. The presence of the reader in, you know, as I try to con- conjure up a reader of my poem, the moment I sort of see them is also the moment they're gone. Now that I think about it, of course, there's a, a, a mythic echo there of, of Orpheus and Eurydice. Mm-hmm. Because why? Explain that. Well, because, uh, you know, I mean, she's the ultimate reader. Uh-huh. Uh, there's this, these messages that go back and forth between Orpheus and Eurydice, uh, 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 carried by Hermes, and that's the uh, origin of our phrase hermetic. And th- as soon as you turn around and try to see the reader, the reader disappears. Mm-hmm. So you, you imagine your reader is, is totally invisible, but you must occasionally do readings of poetry, right? When you when you have an audience right, right in front. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then there they are sitting staring right at you, but and you say that's is that odd for you then? Well, they're not necessarily readers. They're sitting there and 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 somebody's, you know, talking. They're listeners. Yeah. It's a different deal, you know. I I'm, I'm much more concerned with poems on the page. I don't even particularly like poetry readings. Why not? Well, because I think anything that pushes poetry towards the performative is to my taste, a mistake. Really? So you yeah. you don't like when actors read your stuff? Or? I've never heard an actor read anything I've written, and nor do I relish the occasion. Uh, well, you're going to hear one on this <laughs> podcast. And, uh, and, and, and any mistake that she makes in the reading is totally my fault, because I was the one who directed her. So we actually were, were, were completely um, flummoxed by this poem. We didn't know how to, how to attack it, and that's, uh-huh. and that's, that's one of the reason I'm, reasons I'm calling you right now. So if people want to read more of your poetry, where, where, where are they going to find it? Uh, in books, in bookstores. But what, what book would you recommend that people get started with? I'm always trying to sell the most recent book because it makes my publisher happy. So uh, the most recent book is Elegy on Toy Piano, uh, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. And I have a book coming out in November that Dear Reader is in uh, called Embryo-Yo. 
Uh-huh. And that'll be published by Believer Books. Dean Young, thanks very much. It was a pleasure, Curtis. More of Dean Young's poems are on our website, poetryfoundation.org, where you'll also find poetry news and features. Please do take a moment to let us know what you thought of this program. Email us at podcast at poetryfoundation.org. The music used in this program comes from the Claudia Quintet. For Poetry Off the Shelf, I'm Curtis Fox. Thanks for listening. Tough poem? Call the poet. From Poetry Off the Shelf, the Poetry Foundation's weekly podcast, hosted and produced by Curtis Fox. To hear more episodes, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. So that's the difference between just information and art. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. ReSound's intern is Lily Bowie. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency. On the web at doejo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. ReSound is also supported by Third Coast Percussion, performing a free concert in Millennium Park on Thursday, July 12th at 7.30 p.m. The program features percussion music and electronic works by John Cage, Paul Lansky, and ensemble members Clay Condon and David Skidmore. For more information, visit thirdcoastpercussion.com. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.